Thank you, Hudson. So in our uh, series through the Gospel of Matthew, we, last week we, were, um, we considered the baptism of Jesus. That was at the end of chapter 3 of Matthew, and we, uh, we saw how um, Jesus identified with us, right? He took the place uh, where we should be, in the place of confession of sin, in the place of um, cleansing from sin, that Jesus in his... Uh, in his incarnation, in his coming to earth, he, he came and he, uh, he, he, he stood where we should be standing. He came to take our place. He came to identify with us. And, and we saw then how um, immediately after his baptism, it says heaven was opened and the Spirit of God came and, and rested on Jesus. And the Father from heaven declared with an audible voice that this is my Son who I love my beloved son, and I'm well pleased with him. And so, uh, it's in that context that we need to understand this passage, the temptation of Jesus, that, that Jesus has the Spirit of God come down on him to rest on him. He's heard a declaration of the Father's love, and while his, his hair is still wet, the Spirit of God leads him into the wilderness in order to be tempted. That's a, almost a strange idea that, that it's the Spirit of God who's now come on Jesus to lead him so that Jesus will live his life in the power of the Holy Spirit. That if, you know, sometimes there's confusion as to what is a Spirit-led life all about. Well, it's Jesus. Jesus is uh, our example of what a spirit-led life is, lo- is, is like, that Jesus lived his life in dependency on the Holy Spirit. And now, it's that same spirit who's rested on Jesus, it says, leads him into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil. It's not like the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness in order to fast and pray and experience fellowship with God. It's and, and this temptation by the devil is a surprise. No, there's a divine purpose in what is going on here. That while Satan is now, we'll see, going to tempt Jesus, trying to get him to act contrary to the Father's will for him, it is, there is a divine purpose in all of this. That, that God will use these very temptations to establish Jesus in the Father's love. I've preached this event before, uh, the temptation of Jesus, uh, I think a couple of times. And, and generally, uh, and, and you, if, you've, if you're church folk, you've probably heard dozens of sermons on the temptation of Jesus. And quite often, we, we focus on Jesus as an example for us, as how, uh, how do, what, do, what do we learn from this passage about how we should overcome temptation and be victorious over temptation like Jesus was? And, and we hear, you know, Jesus quoted Scripture back to the devil, and, and it's all really, really good. Um, this morning, I'm going to take, just come at this passage from a little bit of a different angle, with a different emphasis. Those are, that's a good way to, there's, there's much that we can learn from Jesus as to how to uh, overcome temptation. But I want us to see this morning, I want us to celebrate 
important truths about the nature of Jesus' ministry that we learn here. That there is going to be something about the kingdom of Jesus. There's going to be something about the mission of Jesus that's clarified through his resistance of these temptations. He's tempted by, first of all, the devil. The devil, there the Greek word is diablos, which means accuser, the accuser. Uh, Elsewhere, uh, even in Matthew's gospel, he's referred to as Satan or Beelzebub. He's an intelligent, powerful spirit being who is thoroughly evil. It's not a force. It's not an evil force. This is an intelligent being, a person. He's directly involved in perpetrating evil in the lives of individuals and on a much larger, grander scale. That's who's tempting Jesus here, the enemy of God and his people and his kingdom, the great enemy, the great adversary. But it's important for us, too, to understand, I think, um, as we're, especially as we're kind of walking through Matthew's gospel, we're trying to understand the, the important themes that Matthew is pulling out and the, the way in which Matthew is telling this story that is, uh, that is unique to the way that Matthew is telling the story. Matthew is telling, is writing in order to convince his readers, especially Jewish readers, that Jesus is Israel's Messiah, the promised Savior, the promised coming King who would fight uh, battles for his people and set his people free and lead them into, um, into peace and security. Matthew is deliberately telling the story of Jesus in a particular way in order to convince these Jewish readers that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. And he parallels the story of Jesus with the story of Israel. So think for a moment. Is there anything in the, in the story of Israel that, you know, involved the wilderness? How about, how about the number 40? He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. The wilderness and 40, is that ringing any bells yet? Rocks, how about rocks and stones doing weird things? Last week we saw, you know, or a... Uh, uh, um, the week before, actually, in chapter 3, though, is talking about rocks and stones becoming children of Abraham. Here, rocks and stones becoming loaves of bread. How about water out of a rock? You see, um, Matthew is deliberately writing um, the story of Jesus to parallel the story of Israel's exodus out of Egypt. In, Matthew, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, we'll read that verse in a little bit, but God's saying that he was testing Israel in the wilderness. Same word here as Jesus being tested. And we're going to see this morning that where Israel failed, Jesus is victorious. If you actually turn to um, Exodus chapter 4. It's important. I think, I think you've you got to see this. If you have, so if you have your phone, you can swipe there. If you are looking in a physical body, a Bible, it's right, Exodus, second book in the Bible. Exodus chapter 4. This is like, so the, the Israelites, the Jewish people, are um, un, under oppression, under an evil pharaoh in Egypt. And God comes through Moses and says that he wants Pharaoh to let 
his people go. But listen to how he describes Israel. Exodus 4, beginning of verse 22. And this is what God's saying to Moses. He's giving Moses instruction as to what he's going to say to Pharaoh. He says, you will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go. Look, I'm about to kill your firstborn son. There's, there's, much, there's much parallel here in Matthew's gospel to, to the story of Jesus. We actually didn't, we didn't dive into this passage, part of Matthew chapter uh, 2 very much, but in Matthew chapter 2, um, we, we, we read of Jesus, little baby Jesus, getting, uh, uh, you know, running away through Mary and Joseph from the murder of the innocents, in uh, the massacre of the innocents in Bethlehem. But they flee to Egypt, and Matthew writes, and he quotes Hosea, the prophet, in Matthew 2, verse 15, this all happen so that what the prophet said would be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. This is, this is, there's so much parallel here that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's vocation, that Israel was called to be the son of God. Israel was called to live in right relationship with God so that they could represent God to all the nations of earth. And where Israel failed, Israel failed to relate to God and they failed to represent God. Jesus will be victorious. Jesus will fulfill the calling that Israel failed in, that he will succeed and he will pass the test. That he will rightly relate to God and he will rightly represent God to the world so that all the nations of the earth could come to know and live in relationship with the one true living God. And so that he would then lead his community out of oppression into a new promised land to live in freedom with God as their father. And so we need to understand this temptation in, in that light. That Jesus is succeeding where Israel failed. That he is actually fulfilling the calling that Israel did not live into. And at the core of each of these three temptations that the devil presents is this. Jesus, you can't trust the Father's love. I believe this is actually at the core of every temptation that you and I face as well. Can you trust your Father's love for you? Can you trust that the Father in heaven loves you? In Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews, there's this passage that says, you know, uh, he's inviting us to run the race with endurance and and to to cast off every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, entangles us. I believe that sin is this sin, the sin of not trusting in God's love, is unbelief in the Father's love. And all three of these temptations, at its very core, Satan is saying, you can't trust that the Father loves you, that, that he has his best in mind for you. So we'll see that as we work our way through these temptations. So the first temptation, verses 2 and 3. After Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. No kidding. Anyone done a 40-day fast before? I do, I do know some people who have. I haven't. I'm not nearly spiritual enough for that. I obviously like food too much to do that. He was hungry. Jesus is human. Right? He's thoroughly human. He's hungry. 
Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If Jesus, if you're the Son of God, which really many you know, uh, scholars would say it's probably just as accurate to say, Jesus, since you're the Son of God, you know, the devil is not really disputing whether or not Jesus is the Son of God. Like, Jesus just heard the Father from heaven say, you are my beloved Son. devil heard it too. But it's not really up for debate. Since you're the Son of God, why should you be so hungry? If you're God's Son, why should you go hungry? Why should you experience that kind of pain and weakness? Why should you go without? You're God's son, for goodness sakes. What, what, what Satan is saying to Jesus to do, or you know, suggesting to Jesus, hey, turn these stones to become bread. Jesus can do it. He could do it. It's not actually inherently wrong for him to do it. To make stones into bread isn't breaking any commands. Jesus is about to do all kinds of miraculous signs and wonders. The next passage, he's healing all kinds of diseases. Matthew chapter 14, Jesus takes a couple of loaves and fishes and feeds 5,000 people. And the very next chapter, takes a few loaves and feeds 4,000 people. He's going to do food miracles in a few moments, in, in a few days. But the temptation, the question is this. Will Jesus use his power and his position as God's son in order to meet his own needs? For his own self-gratification? Or will he trust his father to meet his needs and to satisfy his hunger? Satan is saying, use your power and position to take care of yourself. You can't trust the father to do it for you. You can't trust that the Father loves you. Use your position. Use your power to meet your own needs. You've got to take care of yourself. But it was the Father's will that he fast at this time and that he feel hungry. And Jesus quotes Scripture. All of his scriptural quotes, this is another reason why this isn't a... a, a a fulfillment of Israel's vocation through the wilderness in Exodus. All of his quotations of Scripture here are from Deuteronomy, the early chapters of Deuteronomy, which is Moses' farewell sermon to the people of Israel saying, this is what's happened in the wilderness. And he says, man must not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is the, this is the more extended context of that uh, of that quotation, Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 and 3. Remember, Moses says that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey, these 40 years in the wilderness, so that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands. He humbled you by letting you go hungry. Hungry. He humbled you so that you would go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors had not known, so that they might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth 
of the Lord. Moses is saying, Israel, you should have taken God at his word and trust that he would provide for you. Remember, if you, if you know the story of the Israelites through the desert um, for, out of Egypt, there was a lot of food talk, right? There was a time where the Israelites are like, they want to go back to Egypt because of the leeks and the cucumbers that they remember in Egypt. That's how bad it was, kids, that leeks and cucumbers were like, that's enough. We want to go back to the leeks and cucumbers. That's how little food, good food, that they had to eat at that time. And they're complaining. And then, and then God gives this manna, which is this daily provision of like, manna kind of means what is it? Because we don't really know what it is. But this food that they could collect daily. But remember, God said, just take it. Take one, enough for a day. But people were like, let's hoard it. So I don't want to collect it every day. Let's take two days worth. And then it went bad, right? And, and, um, and then they got sick of manna because they had to eat manna every day. And they wanted meat, no kidding. And so God sends them quail, right? But, and there's all this food talk in the wilderness. And Jesus is saying that he has learned the lesson that Israel should have learned. To take God at his word to provide for them. To walk in the Father's will. You see, for Jesus here to use his power for his own personal needs is antithetical to the very nature of the mission that he has. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. R.T. France says, Obedience to God's will takes priority over self-gratification, even over the apparently essential provision of food. You and I all experience hunger. Whether for food or for something else, right? We all experience desire that 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 longing to be satisfied. That's not wrong. Jesus was hungry. We're human. But there's a right and wrong time to eat. And as one author I read this week said, it's hard to fast when you see others eating what you're hungry for. It's hard to fast. It's hard to go without. It's hard to have that need unsatisfied when you see other people being satisfied by that thing. But when you take matters into your own hands, instead of trusting in the timing and the provision of your Father in heaven who loves you, you missed God's best for you. It's kind of like, imagine going to a great steakhouse. Anyone like going to a great steakhouse? Yeah. You're my brothers and sisters, yeah. <laughs> Some of you go to steakhouses and order something other than steak, and you're very confusing. <laughs> Think of like a Brazilian steakhouse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A charascaria. Think of that. And if you don't know what a Brazilian steakhouse is, it's, it's a little taste of the kingdom of heaven where, where throughout the meal, as long as you have your green card turned up, the, is it guachos? Is that what you call them? Guachos? Brazilians, I'm looking. Am I getting it right, Walter? Guachos will come around with, with choice cuts of meat, seasoned and cooked to perfection over an open fire. And they'll cut it off on your table and put it right on your plate. 
But at the Brazilian steakhouse, there's a, there's a salad bar. And, and, and you, before the meat starts coming, you could go and get pasta salad or quinoa salad. <laughs> and there's bread on the table, and bread, bread is good, right? Bread is very good. But it's not meat. It's not meat. And if you, if you fill up on quinoa salad and bread at a Brazilian steakhouse, you, you've had food, but you've missed out. You've got to trust the process. Jesus' life was sustained by his trust in his Father. The devil said, don't, you can't trust. The Father's going to love you. Meet your own needs. Take matters into your, take care of number one. Jesus says, a life that's sustained by food only is a very poor life. I'm going to trust my Father. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give of myself. And so he does not use his position and his power for his own self-gratification, but he comes for others. Second temptation Verse 5, the devil took him, this is probably by vision, to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, quotes Psalm 91, he will give his angels orders concerning you that they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. See, in the first temptation, Jesus trusts God to supply his needs, and now the devil says, well, let me tempt you through that very assurance. Will he actually do it? Jesus diffused the first temptation through the quoting of Scripture, so the devil says, I can play that game too. I'll quote Scripture to you. But it is his faulty application and his misuse of the Scriptures, which is why we need to learn to handle God's Word responsibly and carefully. You can get the Bible to say almost anything you want it to say. Satan says, God says the Messiah is going to be protected. Says it right here, Psalm 91. He's going to protect you. Why don't you test it out? Let's see. Let's see if he'll actually protect you. Are you sure he loves you? Make him prove it. See, that's the very core of the second temptation. See if he'll protect you. Make him prove his love. Are you so sure of the Father's love? Make him show it to you. See, a demand for the miraculous in order to prove his love was not appropriate. You see, it's a temptation to test God's love, not because he believes in it, but because he doesn't. It's to doubt the Father's love, to unbelief towards the Father's love. And so he quotes scriptures. Jesus, again, don't test God. Take God at his word. The Father has declared his love for me six verses ago. 
and that's enough. So I will not create a situation where God is obligated to act. It's a manipulation of God, right? This, you know, I'm going to jump off a bridge and see if God takes care of me. That's a manipulation of God where you're trying to get God to serve you as opposed to you serving God. Now, we have God's word that he loves us. How did he demonstrate his love for us, the scriptures say? By sending his one and only son for us. We have the declaration of God's sons, but who among us has not doubted whether God loves us? Have you ever asked God for a sign that he loves you? Have you ever given God an ultimatum? Do this for me or else I'll know you don't love me. You see, Jesus is victorious where we so often fail. And he chose the way of quiet trust in the love of the Father. In the third temptation, verse 8, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. A cruel enticement. The kingdoms of this world are the very reason why Jesus came in the first place. He had in his mind a vision of a redeemed humanity, of a unified redeemed humanity in relationship with the Father in heaven. He came so that the nations, all the peoples on the earth, would become worshipers of the one true God. And here Satan holds out the prospect of this mighty empire. Just, just compromise, though, to get there. Be practical. The ends will justify the means. You're going to be a great ruler. You will rule with justice. Jesus, I'm sure you'll, you'll have a great empire. You might, you might wonder, why is this really a temptation for Jesus? Doesn't it seem ridiculous? Bow the knee to Satan? Why is, this, why is this an actual temptation? I believe here's why. See, a time was coming when Jesus would stand on another mountain. You read about it in Matthew 28. And he will say, be able to say that he has all authority on earth. Jesus, there's a time is coming where Jesus will say, I have all authority on earth. And he's standing on a mountain as he says this. But what is between Matthew 4 and Matthew 28? What has to happen between Jesus' temptation by the devil and him standing on a mountain saying, I have all authority on earth? What has to happen in between? The cross. Suffering. death. You see, before Jesus sits on a throne, he must hang on a cross. And the devil here is saying, Jesus, here's a shortcut. Here's the throne without the cross. If the Father loves you, why would you have to suffer? 
Skip the suffering, Jesus. Sit on the throne now. That's a, tempta- that's a real temptation, no? He was tempted throughout his life by this very notion. Remember, he's walking with his disciples and he says to them, hey, who do people say that I am? And they're like, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist to kind of come back and back to life. And, and Jesus says to his disciples, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up on, on their behalf and says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, yes, that is the confession on which my church will be based. And immediately then Jesus begins to teach his disciples that he's heading to Jerusalem so that he could suffer and die. And Peter says, no way, Jesus. No way. There's no way for, that for you, the Messiah, will suffer and die. And Jesus says what? Get behind me, Satan. Don't tempt me, Satan. This is the way I'm going. I'm going the way of the cross. Think of the Garden of Gethsemane, the night Jesus was betrayed, the night before his, cruci- the night of cruci- night before his crucifixion. Jesus is in the garden. He says, Father, if there's any other way. He knew the agony and the suffering that was coming. But here in his temptation and throughout his life, he chose the way of the cross. So that the day would come where he could stand on another mountain and say, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. You see, the devil couldn't offer him authority in heaven. He could only offer him authority on earth. And Jesus could say, all authority on heaven and on earth is given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And so we, along with the church throughout generations, confess and celebrate with Philippians 2 that when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. He was obedient to the way of the cross throughout his life. And for this reason, because he was obedient to death on a cross, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every other name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the reason he's exalted as Savior today is because he was obedient to death on the cross. The reason he is exalted and has the name above every other name is because throughout his life, he did not despise the way of suffering, but he walked in it. He resolutely walked towards the way of the cross. And so now we confess Jesus Christ is Lord, and we remember him, our Savior. And we, come, we celebrate that he overcame the, every temptation of the devil to doubt the Father's love, but he walked resolutely in it. We remember him who used his power not for himself, but in love for us, who walked in trust and obedience even to death on a cross so that sinful people like you and I could be brought near to God and hear the words of adoption. You are my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter, and I am well pleased with you so that you and I could eat and drink in the kingdom of God. 
That's what we celebrate. And so we look, we read this passage of the temptation of Jesus and his victory over it and say, yes, he has fulfilled the vocation where Israel failed. He rightly related to God. He represented God. He walked in obedience and it led him to the cross. And so we will celebrate communion together where we um, remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took some bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took a cup of wine and he poured it out and said, this wine is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And so the reason you and I can celebrate our relationship with God is because of the death of Jesus for us and because of the life of Jesus for us, that he lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died so that you and I could be welcomed into the very presence of God as adopted sons and daughters and hear the voice of the Father saying to us, you are my beloved child. I am well pleased with you. The celebration of communion is for those who have confessed with their mouth and believed in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he died for your sins and he rose again to the newness of life. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've devoted your life and your heart to him and you trust him, we would invite you to participate in communion together today. If you're not in that place yet where you're, where you're still kind of checking things out, window shopping Jesus maybe a little bit or kicking the tires as I like to say, um, we're just so thrilled you're here with us. We'd invite you not to participate in communion, uh, however, and to just kind of, you know, contemplate the words of the songs we're singing and you know, sing them out. And, uh, and we'd love to continue to dialogue with you about who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us. In, in just a moment, I'll invite the servers and the worship team to come forward. And um, as we sing, you can come forward uh, to receive communion. It's been a little bit since we've done it like this. And uh, so just as a by way of reminder, or maybe this is your first time here doing this, um, you'll come forward down either one of these two aisles, okay? And um, there'll be servers at uh, the end of these two aisles. Um, and it works, works best if we kind of start at the front and, and fill the aisle, and then um, as the, those in front of you have, have gone, just make your way to that aisle. And then after you receive uh, the bread and the juice as signs and symbols of the body and blood of Christ, return, if you're in the middle aisle, return down, or in the middle sections, return down the middle aisle. If you're on the outer side, return down along the, the wall aisle. And uh, there's a gluten-free option as well. I should mention that as well. If, you, um, if mobility is a challenge for you and you'd prefer to participate in your seat, I'll be coming around um, and just kind of catch my eye and, uh, and motion to me, and I'll gladly serve you in your seat. So if the servers and the worship team would come forward now, uh, let us join in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge your presence with us this morning. And we thank you even for these visible signs of your love for us, demonstrated in the death of Christ for us. And so, Jesus, as we participate in communion this morning, we remember you. We remember, Father, that, remember, Jesus, that you overcame temptation, that you never doubted the Father's love, that you always walked in humble obedience and trust that the Father loves you, that you are the true and faithful Son. And while we confess our sin, we confess, Jesus, that you are our Savior. 
And so with joy, we remember you and your sacrifice for us. And I ask, Father, that as we do so, and as we sing songs of our remembrance and we participate in communion, you would build our faith and confidence in you, that we would have this tangible expression that you love us, that you're well pleased with us because of Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.